CIO Talk Radio is brought to you by HP and Siemens Smart Grid. Welcome to CIO Talk Radio with your host, Sun Joke All. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sun Joke All. Welcome to CIO Talk Radio, and uh, happy Thanksgiving to everyone. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. And as always, we invite you to discuss, uh, to join this discussion on Twitter, hashtag CTR Live, and look for this show as hashtag philanthropy. Today's topic is philanthropy and technology changing the world, and our guest for today's show is William Brindley, who's the CEO and Executive Director at NetHope. Good morning, Bill. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's honors all ours, so uh, ready for the Thanksgiving? I'm getting there. All Thank right, good, good. So this for, for this holiday season, we uh, decided to look at how philanthropic organizations could come together and use new ideas and technologies to help make a difference in the world. But in order to achieve this, there are many goals that they have. They'll need to think like a business uh, if they really want to deliver. So with that uh, mindset, the first question is, do you think, like, if you look at any not-for-profit organization, they've got all noble objectives. And yes, uh, we are also looking at those objectives as donors or people who are giving them grants to ensure that that money is put to uh, proper use. Do you think... As anyone uh, in a philanthropic organization taking it as truly a business revenue and to put it to best use so that the best output is provided to people who are donors and as well as the people who are beneficiaries as customers? Yes, I think that uh, there needs to be kind of a line of sight, if you will, to, uh, to evidence, provide evidence to the donors uh, as customers, if you will, as you say, and also the beneficiaries, the various stakeholders, in other words. And you need to have a clear model to make that happen that's integrated and aligned with the interests of everyone. So would you say that uh, the the people who are providing or giving the donation, they really are not looking at line item by line item type of visibility. That's not perhaps their request. The fact that the trust existed is why they donated in the first place. Absolutely. But if, yes, so, so if, if that's happening, and and then if it is not put to good use, then the trust dwindles, and that's why not-for-profits so many a times uh, have issues in securing more donations and funding. Well, and there's also a lot of congestion uh, in the competitions for the funding. So if there isn't the trust and trust needs to be earned then uh, and built over time uh, by producing results as well as building relationships with key stakeholders – then that trust dissipates and decays and you lose the opportunity to continue to work together because it's a crowded field. Now, you, you definitely said the word competition. So it, more and more it seems like that we're talking about a business enterprise or it should be run like a business enterprise. But there are certain things that the people don't need to give donation and they don't need to do charity work. They want to. How do you make people want to do it? How are you as a business looking at that, uh, increasing that want? Well, I mean, like any business, uh, you're looking at passion, if you will. What people, what I call, care about. What do they care about? Is it a disaster in the Philippines? Is it uh, AIDS in Africa? Is it conservation and clean water? 
uh, in, you know, in Southeast Asia. So there you have to say, what do people care about? And then on the other axis, if you will, what are they committed enough to give to, to uh, help in terms of philanthropic giving? Is it very uh, cut and dry in terms of the end objectives versus what person gives donation? Typically, it's not been seen that way. So uh, yeah. you might have a not-for-profit having a lofty goal saying we will help end poverty or we will uh, make the kids more educated and or other noble objectives, which are having a broad-stroked definition. And I'm not sure uh, if, if the people who are in the you know, donation world or people who are donating – they really are able to make a connection between saying, am I going to give my $10? Is that going to help the world hunger? Forty years ago, uh, my uh, children, well, not 40, but almost, <laughs> I've, I've, got, I've got a number of children, and one's 39. So when he was a young boy, he started to write to sponsor a child through an NGO. And he had a direct connect to that child. And in those days, they truly did have a direct connect where they corresponded. So there you have, at the most fundamental level, if you will, a direct connect. You're right. You can lose that as you go up the scale, if you will. And so it's a challenge for organizations. And now you have, with new Internet technologies such as Kiva.org and other formats, you're able to get recapture some of that direct connect to the end beneficiary. So if you are looking at this uh, connection and beneficiary, that's always, as you mentioned, we would lose the site. And many of these bigger goals have got multiple stakeholders across multiple geographic locations. Mm -hmm. So it could start getting fuzzy. Do you think people are charged up enough to say while the scale is increasing? Uh, we will still try to provide that individualized or mass customization or whatever way you can actually make people feel yeah. that their dollars are put to specific use. Yeah, and the betters, better organizations do just exactly that, the mass personalization, where you're able to have the overall strategic vision and goal, which is of value, as well as bring it down to the most uh, personal level. So it's a both and. So uh, when you say that they do it, what would be a good example of that? So a good example would be in microfinance. Pick an organization like Grameen or Opportunity International, groups that focus, uh, Axion, that focus on uh, micro loans or micro insurance now, um, often mobile payments uh, to the poor. Well, they're able to have a macro program, a major strategic uh, initiative and get funding, let's say, from USAID, DFID, uh, the Gates Foundation, Rockefeller, large international funders. But at the end of the day, it comes down to an individual worker uh, in Haiti who is seeking to build a small business in Haiti, for example, where they're creating a beauty shop or someone in Rwanda who's creating a tire repair shop and they're getting the little micro loan that enables them to have the capital to do that. So you might have a macro program that involves a lot of major stakeholders and players, but ultimately it comes down to the individual. So if you were to look at the DNA of a not-for-profit organization, while we know that they are trying to do good and people who have joined may have this uh, urge to give back to the community and that's why to some extent they join. However, 
when you look at the very workers, whether they are employee of a not-for-profit organization or the ones who are connected to that organization in order to, in some place in value chain to basically help the end beneficiary, there doesn't typically look like there's a sense of urgency or some sort of checks and balances for that to get the value created timely and enough in quantity and quality for someone to say, yes, I am creating a good brand, which is excellence done on a consistent basis. Yeah, I mean, you lose uh, the sort of profit initiative, if you will. I, I I know that might be not a terribly attractive word to some, but, you know, the bottom line drives change. I mean, take the best companies in the world, the Microsofts, the Apples, the others of the world, the tech companies, Cisco, Intel, and others, they're always driven by that bottom line, or a Nordstrom or others in another sphere. You could go on with those analogies. And you look at, they're constantly looking at the value to the end customer, and if they don't do it, they go out of business, right? So whereas so many of the NGOs, nonprofits, they are in many ways becoming calcified, and uh, they are institutional, institutionalized such that they're self-perpetuating. And while they may have economic pressures, a lot there isn't that 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 sort of harsh, cold reality of a bottom line. Um, they have other virtues, but that's one of the challenges. So there isn't the proverbial burning platform for many people. Do you think there is something to be done in terms of the standards or compliance issues and others which will allow you to bring the business-like uh, capabilities, the sense of urgency, the accountability that uh, you would like to see from an outside in as even as a donor to say you have 80% of your donation going into operational expenses, only 20% reaches. What can you do and make it visible to us as you bring about change that 80% goes to the donor and only 20% comes to the, the operational side of that yeah. philanthropic organization? I mean, there are some excellent uh, techniques and institutions, organizations that monitor and measure and look at the uh, so-called pie chart of how much is spent on programs, how much is spent on management, how much is spent on fundraising, for example. And that's useful, but then you get the tyranny of the pie chart, if you will, and there isn't, therefore, enough investment in, say, the smart use of technology, which could bring about a lot, to your point around business, a lot of productivity gains, as we've seen over the last 30, 40 years in the developed world through the smart use of technology. We haven't seen those as much in the nonprofit world because of the tyranny of what I call the tyranny of the pie chart. So that's one dimension on that. Compliance is one angle. Visibility reporting is one area. Frankly, and this may be lead to a whole series of other questions from you, perhaps, but I think some of the models are threadbare. I think a lot of these models were developed after World War II for good reason, but now I think they are getting worn out, and I think we need some fresh new ways of uh, going after the same goals. Actually, you stole my thunder because I was just about to ask you about innovation in this space. Not only, of course, you know, technology, of course, people do technology. And we'll come to that side of it uh, after this first segment. But then uh, what do you think is required 
for uh, at a fundamental level, at a strategic level, at a policy level for these not-for-profit organizations to become more relevant. I'll use this word relevant in today's day and age when people want instant results. They want most of the work that is done and they want to watch everything that's going on versus saying, I gave you my $10 and you deal with it. Yeah, I mean, some will cope, but some will not. And some should not, in my view. I'm pretty radical view, perhaps, but I believe that a social enterprise, perhaps, model is, and it's evolving too, but could be a better way to go where there's actually a different kind of charter. And it isn't registered as a, say, 501c3 educational charter as it would be in the United States and similarly in other countries, but rather registered as a for-profit or low-profit, no-profit, but still a, a more traditional enterprise legally, but focused on a more business-type model. That may, may have to happen, and it is happening. I know of organizations that are giving up their nonprofit charters for a for-profit charter in order to be able to do more and have more flexibility and have more of the drive that I think you're after here. So let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back, and then let's start talking about how does the new uh, wave of philanthropy Look how what will it what will be the shape and form of that new wave of philanthropy? How are we going to do philanthropy going forward, which will make all stakeholders happy and content? Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. The U.S. and Canada represent just 5% of the global population, but collectively we consume about 35% of the world's resources. Supply is not keeping up with demand, so change is not an option, it's imperative. Siemens brings knowledge to power through modernization, responsible energy consumption, and greening the grid projects. Siemens Smart Grid has the answers. Just Google Lead the Charge Portal. HP is proud to sponsor this program. Tap into our expertise, innovation, and services to bring your most important workloads to the cloud. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sun Joke All. Welcome back. So uh, we did talk about some of the areas in which innovation is happening. So where do you think this whole uh, philanthropy is going? What is the new shape and form in which every stakeholder will feel good about being involved? I think it's multidimensional. I think that stakeholders, um, you know, you now really need a sort of tri-sector model. You need the corporate, you need the uh, civil society, and you need you know, you need the public, the more government uh, side of things. So you really need to have all three lenses, if you will, in order to get to the answer to that. And what would be that in, in terms of specifics? What are some of the areas in which the work is in progress? Yeah, so in terms of the um, – I think that you, you need to have more of a sort of 
how do we keep score kind of view. <laughs> in other words, I think you, in any system like this, you need a more systems type of thinking where you're really providing metrics. So, for example, in a disaster, you need to be able to show not only the sort of civil society benefits in terms of reconstructing the telecommunications network. You have to also show how that benefited uh, a certain number uh, and types of beneficiaries, displaced persons, as well as you have to liaise with the governments to show the, um, the way in which, you know, the compliance and the conformity to the government and the benefit to the overall uh, well-being of the nation was accomplished. So I think, for example, in the Philippines is a prime example of that. So if you were to come down to now the, the strategy is kind of discussed here. Now we look at the tactics. What yes. all tactics that you think were used earlier are not going to be relevant anymore? Uh, in technology or in philanthropy? In philanthropy to start with, and then we'll get into the implementation, okay. which is going to use technology. I think, you know, uh, this is probably a truism now, but I think the uh, charity model is, is, thread, is gone, and we're moving much more into an investing model. There are types of philanthropy, such as impact in investing or catalytic investing or patient capital, various types of terms that are used whereby um, the wall is broken down between traditional charitable giving and investing and different models and actually devices or financial uh, instruments, if you will, are utilized, bonds and other techniques, to be able to invest more, if you will. And philanthropies uh, are able to have that sort of more patient, innovative view. Uh, you know, the, case, the, the Gates Foundation is a, is a great example of that, whereby they can make that kind of investment, if you will, uh, for the long term. Now, you use very interesting uh, analogies where you got uh, uh, investment. So do you expect a venture capitalist or an angel to come and say, I'm going to help you start this, and you give me such returns? Yes. In other words, that, and that is a challenge in terms of how do you get the different um, returns. Are you, is it, you know, you've got the financial returns, the social benefit, sustainability, various types of lenses or, or metrics, uh, the ways in which you can evaluate the different returns. And that's a challenge, but it's an evolving one, and it's getting quite mature. So, yes, there would be pools of funds that would be invested uh, either through a, a traditional uh, philanthropic mechanism or through some of the newer models to be able to make an investment, to make a change, uh, in order you know, to have the same kind of goal that you would have with more traditional charity. Now, one is to, of course, look at the external factor and see how you can make it profitable. How do you make people invest? Now, another thing is to look within and not run it as people joke about government that it has a $1,000 hammer and a $100 nail yeah, exactly. type of a procurement policy. And, and to some degree, people also talk about philanthropic organization because the money is coming easy. I mean, while it doesn't come easy, but nobody really is accountable for it. So it gets misused or it is uh, not used to the degree that it could be in order to create the right level of value. Yeah. And, and you know, people, I, I, don't, I mean, it depends on your view, your anthropology, right? Your view of people. But you know, I think people generally in the philanthropies are well-meaning, 
and are good people seeking to do good things and government the same. But something happens when it gets combined, and you know it's the it's the challenge of how it it sort of it's not quite the right word, but dumbs down in a way and doesn't get optimal. So you need to shake that up, and you need to take a fresh view and come up with new ways of doing things. Now, who's going to do that? Because if you got top to bottom, everybody's wearing that uh, angel effect or an angel yeah. uh, halo on their head and not thinking that we got to really... Yeah, I think you need disruptive interventions. I think you have people like Pierre Amidiar and uh, even USAID, uh, you know, a government institution, are looking at innovative ways to shake things up. I think if the donors, um, and ultimately you kind of follow the money, right? If the money... Uh, the, the the supply side, if you will, is looking at things differently and looking at new ways and new approaches, then you'll have disruption, and that'll bring about change, and that's what we've seen in mobile and uh, many, many other technology areas as well, of course. No, so concerns that I'm raising on this show is not are the, these are not any new concerns that are being seen. And you mentioned that the government and other policymakers are looking into it. I'm sure there is a lot of looking into has happened <laughs> over the years. What has come out of that effort? Yeah, so I think that there are concrete examples where groups have, um, you know, have tested, if you will. And strategy these days is a series of tests in terms of how they might take that kind of an approach. So, you know, I think, for example, in uh, the microfinance area, which is a, is a good one, there is a group called Better Than Cash, where a group, a collaborative group, and we haven't talked much about collaboration, a related topic here, a collaborative group that NetHope, my organization that I'm the CEO of, helped to put together, together with USAID, uh, the Gates Foundation, uh, Visa, um, Citibank, uh, many of the a number of the NGOs, um, Concern and Care, uh, and other organizations put together an alliance that would take a more um, digital approach, if you will, to the uh, development aid process versus the more physical approach, and I can go into that in more detail. So uh, when you specifically spoke about this microfinance, et cetera, they, all the initiatives that you mentioned, there was something that you could measure. But when exactly. I'm talking about, like, you know, the world's hunger or uh, overall education for people, what are the possible ways to measure things like those in order for – because this is – I mean, I've, I've used this in the past that what you don't know enough about, you cannot measure, and what you cannot measure, you cannot – Exactly. Improve. And so you really need design, monitoring, and evaluation systems and a theory of change to begin to sort of transform the social sector. So there are groups such as Nudia, which is a technology platform, that can be used to empower in the uh, organizations of all sorts that we've talked about the stakeholders to collect data, to design a system, design an approach, and then be able to have the kinds of metrics and reports that are needed in order to monitor and evaluate the effectiveness of an investment be it a charitable type or philanthropic type in, uh, investment. So, so that's one example is sort of in the data collection and systems world, which is a, a platform called Nudia. 
And how did that data collection get analyzed and how was that output, the, the analytics that was created or the results that were created were used as a positive feedback for incremental changes or improvements in the whole processes and, and the people and the technology? Yeah, so you have, without going into too much depth, you have data, information, knowledge, and what we call wisdom, I guess you might call, right? So you have data, which is the unstructured pieces of raw observations and measures. And the big problem in these organizations is what we call small data. Uh, big data, of course, is a topic, and I'm actually on the World Economic Forum's council around big data. We'll be on that council at that council meeting next week in Belgium. But you have the small data challenge, which is the smallest sort of unstructured. Then you have information, of course, where it's transformed into that, can be analyzed, and you can see the relationships and the connections between the data. That leads to knowledge, uh, which creates is created, and you therefore can start to make better decisions, you can be more outcome-based in terms of what you look at in terms of philanthropic investment or charitable giving, depending on how you look at it. And then ultimately, you can have wisdom, so you can really have that sense of the future, and you can start to look over the horizon, which I think helps build trust, which we talked about, which is so critical to all this. So interestingly, uh, not every uh, not-for-profit organization or philanthropic organization is at the same level of sophistication as Bill and Melinda Gates or Clinton Foundation or anyone right. who has got very deep pockets. Right. You are talking about the technology areas like big data, etc. We have seen organizations having a problem wiring their computer, for, and for that they don't have people, and they have to look for outside uh, organizations to help them with those minimal level, like, you know, rudimentary level tasks related to technology. Mm -hmm. And we are talking about something which is as sophisticated as big data. So is there something being done for the not as, uh, you know, affluent not-for-profit organizations? So this is where collaboration comes in, where you basically can have the typically underfunded in the technology space nonprofits. So they're Again, back to the tyranny of the pie chart. Therefore, money, because of that, and the 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 uh, met- metrics that are used, the, the the downside of that. There's some positive, but the the trade-off is they're not making enough investment in technology. The way out of that is to one of the ways is to collaborate. NetHope, for example, was founded originally by a group of seven NGOs that while their front-facing beneficiaries were different, say CARE, Mercy Corps, the Nature Conservancy, different beneficiaries, children, women, wildlife, etc., from a technology standpoint, in the developing world, they needed the same things, and yet they were all underfunded. They had unstable and expensive connectivity, for example. So by pooling their resources together and by aggregating their requirements and by investing and then bringing a, building an ecosystem of third-party investors, Intel, Microsoft, Accenture, and others, you're able to then address those needs in a more collaborative model, and you can kind of share the benefit of the platforms that are built as a result. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be back uh, after this short break and look at the actual technologies and innovations that have been done in it, made with cloud, the mobility, the social media, big data. So one is to basically paint a bigger picture of saying that big data can help X, Y, Z. 
what has been the impact? What are some of the specific steps taken leveraging each of those newer technology disruptions and innovation in order to build, get the end benefit, which is all we are all, we are all after, to get that end benefit and what is the proof point? Please stay tuned. We'll be right back and explore. HP is proud to sponsor this program. Tap into our expertise, innovation, and services to bring your most important workloads to the cloud. The U.S. and Canada represent just 5% of the global population, but collectively we consume about 35% of the world's resources. Supply is not keeping up with demand, so change is not an option, it's imperative. Siemens brings knowledge to power through modernization, responsible energy consumption, and greening the grid projects. Siemens Smart Grid has the answers. Just Google Lead the Charge Portal. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sunjog All. Welcome back. So uh, we did speak about a little bit about big data and the uh, you know the different technology innovation that has happened in the area of cloud mobility, social media, etc. One is to uh, talk about it, strategize about it. Another is to look at specific proof points. And uh, Bill, you actually anyways mentioned that the not as privileged not for profits are also going to get support in it. But let's look at the real value what we are after in terms of, uh, you know, getting more benefits to the end beneficiary. That's the end goal for all of us. So how are these technology and their implementation are being positioned towards that end goal, to, towards meeting that end goal? So, uh, yes, so the, the one of the key trends is that uh, we're going to need to reach people where they are with information that they are seeking in a, with a means of communication with which they are familiar. So in other words, they need to be able to use what they have, right? So what's happening is with the proliferation of mobile technologies, you're able to reach the workers in the field uh, that are providing health, education, and other types of services, as well as the end uh, beneficiaries themselves. And they're able to use simple technologies such as even SMS, SMS technologies to do texting to show, for example, that they're complying with adhering to a health um, regimen that they're required to follow for AIDS mitigation, let's say. So we're using technologies, uh, not so much smartphones, although that's going to increasingly be available in the developing world, but certainly mobile technologies, for example, which is something that increasingly Many people are, many of the beneficiaries are familiar with them, as one example. 
So um, when we spoke about the mo- like mobility or you're saying smartphone is not there, and uh, we have many times seen in the development countries, even they are doing better than, than the United States in terms of how mobile and mobility is really yes. taking ground. So, so if you look at this from a global landscape standpoint, and whether you talk about cloud or you talk about mobile, so you have an, a way to scale without having to uh, create more infrastructure or incremental investment. Exactly. You can make everything as an operational expense versus a capital expense. Exactly. And, and then, yes, exactly. And then, and then you've got big data, which actually allows you to do real time. And, and that could most importantly be used for emergency services. So yeah. you've got very good inherent traits of these technologies, which could, when, when packaged together, could really do wonders in the way you you create value. So do you think it is being thought that way or we are trying to do the best we can and that's where we are? Um, I think it's, you know, it's a combination of reactive and, and intentional, right? So reactively in a disaster, we use technologies. Intentional, we have plans. So, and I think a lot of this is inexorable. I mean, I think the technology trends are going to continue. You're right. The developing in the developing world, or mobile devices are proliferating as they get lower, lower cost. Even with people that have to say share SIM cards in certain locations where they're, you know, but they still have access to a mobile phone. So you're yes. So the trends are going to continue. The access points are going to continue. Uh, I think it actually back to our earlier conversation is going to change. The actual nature of organizations that are typically the nonprofits that are delivering these services, and they will move from physical uh, aid, if you will, to digital aid. So I think they're both a, there's a, both an immediate, immediate and a longer term directional change going about going on. So um, now. You, this is this is something that we would like to understand is that in spite of all the newer innovations, et cetera, what are the typical people, process, politics, pocketbook challenges that still remain, which are not exactly chronic, but they are very inherent because of the DNA of any such organization? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you have, you know, you have the cascade, right? The, the classic, you've got the leadership challenge. If I'm following you, you've got the, the, the you've got the the sort of systems challenges of the of the organism, if you will, of the different organizations. <laughs> In other words, you have the people, the human capital. That's always the long pole. And then you say the pocketbook and these other things. Yes, there's a lot of challenges, but if you have the right people, I found you can typically figure that out. Obviously, a well-funded venture tends to succeed. So funding is key, but if you have the right people and the right leadership, then you're typically able to attract funding, be it a small local nonprofit or a large international organization such as Global Impact or World Vision or Oxfam. Now, technology is not seen as a favorite thing for most not-for-profits traditionally. Is that changing? Because now, if you were to look at, for example, supply chain, totally something different. You can only do so much at the process level. Afterwards, you try to use technology to do innovation. Similarly, from a policy standpoint and people standpoint, you could do only so much. So maybe technology could be your savior. Well, do you I think, think that, that is how it's been looked yeah, at? Yeah, I think that, that if we look at trends and you want to look out a little way, I think 
that technology will dramatically change the supply chain and the nature of the organization where instead of, for example, one major international NGO, 60 cents of a dollar is spent on their supply chain, moving food and supplies, trucks, gasoline, etc., etc. That's going to change. They, that's not going to continue. And I think other, the model will no longer be that type of a model, but rather they will become, instead of providing physical aid, they will be providing digital aid, if you will. And in the future, it won't be the supply chain won't come that direction. It'll come from, let's just say, Barclays Bank and Safaricom and um, Western Union and Western Union's um, network of of uh, of of, um, of suppliers and of distributors and of people at the point of sale, and then the actual beneficiaries and the NGOs, the nonprofits, will be certifying and validating those beneficiaries at the end. That will become their role, as well as architecting and putting together this supply chain. So it will be a totally different model, I believe, in the next 10 years as we look out. And technology will be critical to that. Now, as we all know that whenever you introduce or include humans in a process, that's where the weakest link can be. If you were to replace that while we're trying to take away jobs, but if you were to be able to automate some of the business workflows or make the collaboration a little more seamless, et cetera, et cetera, what are those opportunities that you see sitting outside and say, these are my, my set of projects? If I were to make the perfect model of um, a philanthropic organization, what all would you like to see automated versus where human intervention is absolute must? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to determine what is the – distinctive, unique value proposition of an organization. And then you have to say, well, how do we get out of everything else that's not strategic to that? Do we need to be running our own data centers? Do we need to be running our own networks? Do we need to be running our own help desks? Do we need to be you know, running our own you know, payroll, financial processes, et cetera, et cetera? My answer would be on the technology pyramid, if you will, that you only really need to be involved uh, directly in the, your IP, your intellectual property, if you will. So if you're uh, World Vision or Save the Children, that would be child data. For example, World Vision, I believe, sponsored, there's 4.5 million children sponsored through World Vision. Well, that would be your treasure chest, if you will. That would be what you would protect and preserve, and that's where you would focus your talent and your resources, and then you would make sure you manage the rest, but you wouldn't own the rest. It would be outsourced, if you will, uh, to others. You are looking at the government across multiple nations, especially for the organizations who are trying to have a far-reaching impact, basically globally. Mm-hmm. Do you think the mindset, the, the strategies that an organization can put to good use, including even technology implementation, could could require you to really jump through the hoops just to create uniformity and homogeneity in in the way the operation is run to your benchmarks, basically to your satisfaction so that the best value is created, or you have to make compromises? Well, I mean, ultimately, you design for the end state, uh, you know, engineering approach, right? You look to the end state, but you, you have to make compromises and adjust 
in the real world. So it's a both and. I'm not sure if that helps give you the answer, but it's not. No, it's, I mean, what are some of, the, some of the it specific depends. areas where you would say whatever we do in the United States would be a little different doing it in China or India or, or well, uh, any other? One. Data is one, right? So the, the rules and laws around data, uh, I'm on the World Economic Forum's Council, Global Agenda Council for Big Data and Data and Development in Europe. I'm going to be in uh, Europe next week. And one of the major challenges is that the, with the Patriot Act, for example, in the United States, the rules and regulations and what can be done with data are very different in the United States than they are outside, uh, certainly in Europe. And therefore, when you talk about aggregating data and big data, it sounds easy, but it's not. And it's easier to talk about than to actually accomplish. can be done, but that's going to be a challenge, for example. So taking it beyond the boardroom or beyond those events that you're going to, what are some of the things that can be done by the stakeholders and the leadership and even the individual workers so that a portion of it, it can start getting implemented? Because what again is happening is we are uh, living the reality. At the same time, the donors' dollars are not being put to the best use they can be. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's a kind of three-pronged strategy that I would utilize to answer you. The first is... I would deliver on current technology initiatives, and I would do uh, do them well. In other words, things that are really useful to providing data collection platforms uh, in you know in in Kenya, for example, for home health workers by an organization such as Care, which is a real project. So they have a very good project. Wouldn't change anything. I would deliver on that show that it works, learn lessons from it, and then have that as sort of credibility building that technology can be put to good use. The second is I would build capacity for the future, and that is around the human capital. And that means ICT skill building. NetHope has put in place, for example, the NetHope Academy, because it's one thing to have the technology, but, you know, the laptop could be used as a doorstop instead of for good use in a, in a country such as, say, Malawi. So you need people with skills. So the second thing I would do would be to invest in skills. And a lot of that's going to be newer skills and, and skills in countries and locations around the world where it's very difficult to get skilled people. So you have to make an investment in that. And that, again, we're working with Cisco, the Cisco Academy, with Microsoft and their e-learning and others to build that up through our NetHope Academy, for example. The third is I would design and look to the uh, the lighthouse through the fog, and say, where do we go from here? Where's the future taking us? And I would posit that it's moving us to digital aid and away from physical aid. And we need to migrate and move towards that vision over the next uh, number of 10 years, I would say. If you were to inventory the weakest or weaker links in the value chain, mm -hmm. Which ones would those be? But before you kind of, maybe you'll get a minute to think about it because we'll just take a quick break. We'll be right back and then see what is it that we could do to start removing those weaknesses so that we are maximizing our potential. Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back. The 
The U.S. and Canada represent just 5% of the global population, but collectively we consume about 35% of the world's resources. Supply is not keeping up with demand, so change is not an option, it's imperative. Siemens brings knowledge to power through modernization, responsible energy consumption, and greening the grid projects. Siemens Smart Grid has the answers. Just Google Lead the Charge Portal. HP is proud to sponsor this program. Tap into our expertise, innovation, and services to bring your most important workloads to the cloud. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sunjog All. Welcome back. So, well, the weaker links, it's not that they want to, but they are. But what do you do with those weaker links so that we maximize our potential? Um, I think you you look at the... Um, First of all, what they are. I mean, like you, yeah. the question was, which yeah, are they? That's, what I was, that's exactly what I was struggling with. I think we need to first say what they are. Um, and I think, you know, people, processes... Uh, and systems, right? Typical, traditional uh, fail points. And we've talked a lot about people, human capital. That's, I believe, the most important. Processes are important. Um, people tend in, in, in nonprofits to overdo that, in my view, and it becomes a life, takes a life on, of its own. But it's useful, and I think you need to have clear processes. And then systems, which, of course, is our main focus here. And I think in the systems world, you know, I think you need to take out the traditional um, vested interests around technology, for example, running one's own data centers, and get out of that altogether, for example. And that's an inhibitor, I think, because that, if you use a lens of strategic cost management, the money you save by getting out of that and the efficiencies you get could be re- redeployed to more strategic ends. Are there any sore points that you see in this whole value chain on how uh, we do good to others and how do we deliver philanthropy, which have come up again and again in which you feel some collective intelligence is required? We have to put our heads together to get over. Well, let me go back. I think that there's a predicate to this, and that is that the philanthropies typically aren't that interested in funding technology. I naively thought when I came from Wall Street to run this organization, I was at Citibank, I came in to run as my third career, long story, which I won't bore your listeners with, Um, I thought, well, I'll go to these organizations that were philanthropies started by large, uh, you know, by tech uh, individuals who were tech-savvy that made their money in the tech world, they'll fund technology because NetHope is a tech play. Well, I found the opposite. There's almost a phobia about technology for whatever reason, and there are many I've now found out. So I think the first thing is to begin to convince thought leaders 
and uh, others in the media, such as yourself, around the value of technology, which will create the environment for changing that. We've just done major research, for example, with Accenture and published an ebook on technology in emerging markets where we interviewed 25 thought leaders and surveyed 300 and some uh, different uh, corporate, government, and other individuals in order to get the right kind of grounding for this. So I'll stop there, but I think that's one key part, which is you need to shift and get when grants are made you need to have technology be a key part of that, and there needs to be specific grants made to technology. Looking at the external factors, which would actually include any government policies or uh, the way we interact with the giving parties, which are the donors, etc., what do you think that we could do in order to make the environment more conducive for not only, of course, to get more in terms of your revenue, which is more like donations, but also able to take majority of what was given and it is put to good use versus getting you know, trapped in the red tape and, and spending money there? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I think a new... Um I think that a lot of this, and you probably are picking up on a theme here, I think a lot of the old ways of thinking are gone, and you need new leadership to be able to address that kind of a thing. I don't think there's any one answer to that. I think it depends, and that means you have to have wisdom, and in order to do that and ferret that out and sort it out, you need people or leaders who are able to have that kind of wisdom, if that helps. So if I was your lobbyist and I had to go to Washington and say, this is <laughs> how I want right? to, yeah, exactly. So uh, if you were to do that, do you think there would be certain areas in which you would like to help have me make some noise in order for it to become uh, something, create a better environment for greater good? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously the, the topics of the day around transparency, open data, unstructured data, the Internet, not taxing the Internet. There's all kinds of things. Now, that isn't the world that I sort of play in, if you will, or work in. So I try to steer around that. Life's too short, right? But I think to answer your question, that would be kind of one area where I would focus is is on reducing the barriers, taking, if you will, a more libertarian view on that and not have the government kind of micro, micromanage or, or, or socially engineer how things work. I, I really think that's, that's key. I think also creating an open environment where openness is there um, for uh, innovation. And a lot of the government, again, lobbying the government to foster that kind of uh, innovation, I think, is key. Now, what is your, um, I would say, uh, overarching uh, goal as an organization yourself to, you know, bring in terms of benefit to the rest of the not-for-profits? What is it that you're trying to accomplish? So, first of all, we are a member-based organization. So, international NGOs um, join NetHope. And we just added our 41st international NGO. So we have groups in conservation, in disaster response, in uh, uh, international development, in 180-some countries around the world. So in my organization, one of the things is the benefit, the value that's created through the sharing of 
information and insight as well as the hard benefit, if you will, of actually working together to build platforms and tools that can be shared. So there's the soft benefit of collaboration, if you will, and the hard benefit of building scalable projects and programs and tools. So that's one aspect of what we do. The second is we are uh, designed to give back to a broader community beyond our community. So, for example, I just mentioned that we're, we put together a white paper, uh, a point of view on technology in the emerging world, and we are presenting that to the World Bank, to the United Nations, to the World Economic Forum, to the Social Innovation Summit, to the Clinton Global Initiative, and on and on, so that the wealth, if you will, of the knowledge that was resident and latent within uh, NetHope and its members can be shared more broadly and be made more explicit. There's sort of a give back, if you will. We've done the same thing around our information with disasters because NetHope has developed a lot of insights on the smart use of technologies in disasters. Similarly, we published and shared around that. So those are kind of two of the dimensions. So this is the last question for you. What is your advice to the not-for-profit leaders and other stakeholders, whether they're in government, whether they're in policy making, or the folks who have been there and have a strong influence in the way philanthropy is going to be handled going forward? Um, I would... What's your I appeal would, and advice, both? <laughs> well, I mean, humility is one thing. I think learning, therefore, so listen and learn and be a sponge to pick up most of the leaders in philanthropy and in the nonprofit sector, civil society and government, most of the leaders are mid-career to late career and therefore haven't, aren't digital natives, aren't humble in terms of the aspect of tech. I don't mean humble personally, but just in terms of people that are learning people. They tend to be knowing people because they've built up a lot of knowledge. So to me, it's a lifestyle thing. It's more of a being in a position, a posture where you're truly a sponge and you're willing to think non-traditionally about what it is that you're doing. So that's the starting point, and I could go on from there if you like. On behalf of the show and our listeners, I'd like to thank you so much, Bill, for sharing your thoughts about philanthropy and technology, how we use uh, the two together to make sure that we bring about a positive change in this world. Great. Thank you very much for the time today. Thank you so much again. And listeners, please like us on Facebook, search for CIO Talk Radio, and be sure to follow us on Twitter. Thank you again for listening to CIO Talk Radio. This is Sanjog All, your talk show host. Till next week, take care and God bless. Thank you for tuning in to CIO Talk Radio. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. Please join Sun Joke All next Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Central Time, and 10 a.m. Eastern Time for another hour of CIO Talk Radio on the Voice America Business Channel. CIO Talk Radio is brought to you by HP and Siemens Smart Grid.